Open the Word of God to John chapter 3. If it had not been for the Lord on our side, then we wouldn't ever be glorified. And if He hadn't been on our side for glorification, we wouldn't be justified. And if He hadn't been on our side for justification, we wouldn't be called. And if He hadn't been on our side for being called, we wouldn't have been predestinated. And if He hadn't been on our side to be predestinated, we wouldn't have been foreknown. He wouldn't know us. And so we'd be in that band of the majority that God will say, I never knew you. He's the omniscient God of heaven and earth. He knows every detail about every single person that's ever been conceived. But he will say, I never knew you, understood, I hated you. That's what the words mean. He knew everything about them. I never knew you. They're saying, Lord, Lord, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity, laying to their charge all their sins, while we, as sinful or worse, are entering into the joy of our Lord by Jesus Christ. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, then all those blessings in Romans 8, 28 through 39 would not be ours. But he has been on our side. He's been on our side from before the foundation of the world because the Bible tells us that. The Bible tells us that he chose us in Christ Jesus before the world began and predestinated us to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself way back then. Thank you, Lord, God Almighty, our Father. In John chapter 3, I'm going to read to you the second half of our Lord's words to Nicodemus. And I start at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, Men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And so end the words of the Lord Jesus Christ to Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews. Amen and amen. Now, we have a number visiting with us today, 30 or 40 souls, and I'm sorry that you've come in to a negative day like this. These are sermons 29 and 30 in preaching through the Gospel of John. And because these verses are so abused by so many, we understand the Bible in a two-step approach. What a verse doesn't mean And then what a verse does mean. 
We believe that's the order we're supposed to follow. And we have to follow it throughout the pages of Scripture because there's been so much Bible corruption by false teachers. For instance, Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. We're Baptists. We don't believe that we're baptized in order to get our sins washed away. The Campbellites, the Church of Christ that came out of the Baptists in 1830, they believe that you're baptized in order to have your sins washed away. So we have to take Acts 2.38 and go through the laborious process of proving what the verse doesn't mean, it doesn't mean what they think it means, and then put upon it the proper positive construction of what it does mean. The Catholics take the words, this is my body. In 1 Corinthians 11.24, they take it one way for transubstantiation. The Lutherans take it another way for consubstantiation. The Presbyterians take it another way as a spiritual presence of Christ. And we take it metaphorically that this is my body simply, the bread simply represents as a symbol the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we've got to go through so much work to undo all the damage done and we're in the minority, and they're in the majority, and we're just the babes, and they're all the doctors of the law, but we've got to do it over and over again to be able to explain Bible verses. 1 Corinthians 15, 29 says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? And there go the Mormons. You know, you can get your family tree out and trace it back as far as you're able, go to a Mormon temple, go underground in their underground baptistry, and be dipped over and over again for your dead relatives that never had a chance to meet Joe Smith. And so here we go. There are verses. Those little Arminians bantying John 3.16 around don't have a clue what it means. They don't know anything about the love of God. Their God's love is the biggest joke in the history of the universe. Everyone in hell is loved just as much by their God as everyone in heaven. Would somebody please explain that to me? Those in hell are loved just as much as those in heaven. That love isn't worth anything. That love didn't accomplish anything. It didn't do anything. And those people are still suffering there for their sins. If that's the case, then our constitution and legal system is better than the word of God. Because it will not allow double jeopardy. If Jesus paid for all their sins, why are they paying for all their sins over again? And on and on and on we could go. And brethren, I know what time it is. We've taken a little bit longer this morning in getting to the preaching. And I'll remember that when we pass the appointed hour. (laughs) At least Zach is on my side. We love these verses. I wanted to start out with Romans chapter 8, and I beg you and encourage you to sit down with Romans 8, those last 12 verses, and try to list or mark the blessings in those last 12 verses. I believe it will overwhelm you. I gave up trying to count them all. Because in verse 32, he got to the point where the apostles said, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? things. And I threw up my hands, Lord, you've done it all. You've given all through Jesus Christ 
and it's all guaranteed and it's all certain and all wrapped up in God's predestinating purpose and the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, though his work is not yet finished, when we think about the part of him sitting beside God and interceding for us right now. He ever liveth. He ever liveth to make intercession for us. That's one of the greatest subjects in the world. You all need a lawyer. You're going to meet a judge. And the day is rapidly approaching. And the books are being filled with all your faults and errors and sins. You need a lawyer. But the judge provided a private defender. A peculiar defender for his peculiar people. And the, the lawyer is the judge's son. How would you like to go to court and your lawyer is the judge's son? Now, if they were estranged, you would not like that situation. Because if the judge was against the son, you're in trouble. But what about this relationship? This is my beloved son. Let's hear what he has to say. Do you know what he has to say? I paid his fine for him, Father. But it wasn't just a little fine. It was death. And more death. And Jesus died for us. We are so blessed. Romans 8. It's a sermon on our website entitled, Predestinated and Persuaded. I'd prefer preaching it right now to what I have, but I'll go ahead and we'll continue into John 3. And here's how we're going to proceed. We believe the first rule of Bible study is that every verse in the Bible has to agree with the whole Bible. Hopefully you saw that in the preparatory email that was sent to you last evening. We find that in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, knowing this first. I like it when the Bible tells me what I should put first knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. There is no individual or separate or private interpretation for any verse. They all have to fit together in one cohesive, coordinated, reconciled, unified doctrine. And so that's how we approach the Bible. The flagrant corruption of these verses and the evil consequences of the flagrant corruption are truly, I mean, are difficult to describe. The character of God is greatly altered, and man becomes his own savior by free will. Consequences are easy believism, evangelistic gimmicks, carnal Christianity, once saved, always saved, and all kinds of junk. We believe in the absolute security of the believer by the, by the preservation of God. Romans chapter 8 doesn't allow anyone to fall through anywhere there. There's no holes in that floor. Because that floor is whoever he foreknew, he also glorified. And it's all dependent upon God and Jesus Christ. Who shall lay anything to the charge of them? Christ died for them and God justified them. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 so that I can give you an example of what we have to deal with when we're in John 3. John 3 are our verses. We love them. We, We understand the first half of Jesus' words to Nicodemus about being born again, and they don't. They don't know how a man's born again. And we do by the grace of God, and it's only by the grace of God. We are the least of his people, and I'm the least servant he's ever had in the history of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.20. Behold, it's in the red writing in your Bibles. 
Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. This verse is going to be bandied about today all over the place. There are going to be so-called soul winners that think they're winning souls by using a process and a rule called inviting Jesus into your heart. There's no heart in the verse. There's really no inviting. There's opening a door where Jesus is standing, but they are going to try to get souls into heaven and their names written in the book of life by wicked, depraved sinners inviting Jesus into their hearts. I was raised that way. I invited Jesus into my heart when I was three years old. It was full of meaning. I had deep understanding of my need for justification. I was looking forward to living a sanctified life of discipleship. But I invited Jesus into my heart at three. They think that when a three-year-old invites Jesus into his heart, heaven stops. Everything in heaven stops because God has to bend over in his throne and write a new name in the book of life. The Bible says that my name was written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. But they don't want to read past Revelation 3.20 because 3.20 is all they want in this book, just like 3.16 is all they want in John. Nor will they read up to Revelation 3.20 because the long-haired, blue-eyed, brown-eyed hermaphrodite that they have standing at some door in a garden is totally unlike the description of the Lord Jesus Christ in the first chapter of this book of Revelation. They're partial in the Word of God because they just want their sound bites. And so we have to undo them. Most of us grew up with thinking about inviting Jesus into our hearts. You say, well, what are you going to do with Revelation 3.20? Here's what I'm going to do with it. It's Jesus' words to a church of saved, born-again, justified, glorified, guaranteed, preserved saints on their way to heaven, and it doesn't have an ounce or a pound or a ton or any at all of eternal life in the verse. It has nothing to do with eternal life. It's written to a church of Laodicea that was lacking in fellowship. The issue is supping, not saving. The issue is sup with Christ. Don't get saved by Christ. There is no eternal life in Revelation 3.20. But we came from these wonderful, conservative, independent, Arminian Baptist churches where we've heard this as the rule. We need to get someone down on their knees to invite Jesus into their heart. What has staggered me is that I have read John 3 over and over again, and it nowhere in there, and I don't understand it, Jesus never asked Nicodemus to invite him into his heart. Because Jesus understood Revelation 3.20, that it was to a church, and it wasn't to Nicodemus. It was to a church that was lacking in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no eternal life in it. Jesus could stand outside the heart door of a depraved sinner until he regenerates that heart. That sinner will never open the door for Jesus to come in. When Jesus wants to open a door of a heart, are you with me? When Jesus wants to open the door of a heart, do you know what he does? 
He opens it. Does it tell us that in the Bible? Acts 16, 14, there was a certain woman named Lydia that heard Paul preach, whose heart the Lord opened. I love the truth of the Bible. You know, we just got to read the whole thing. See that long-haired, brown-haired, brown-eyed fairy man? Listen, I grew up with that picture in the house. That's not a man. That's a she-woman, she-man. All you got to do is turn back to Revelation chapter 1. Do you want to know what Jesus Christ looks like? How can you get to Revelation 3.20 and paint a picture of a long-haired, effeminate creature with a beard, a woman with a beard? How can you do it? Because you're a Roman Catholic under the delusion of the devil himself in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12, where God said, I will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth. That's the word of God. Roman Catholics are under the delusion of the devil, and so they make caricatures of the Lord Jesus Christ. They've never painted a real picture of Mary, nor have they ever painted a real picture of Jesus. That's where that picture came from. And they hang in Baptist homes. Lord have mercy. Forgive us, Lord Jesus. Here's what my Lord Jesus Christ looks like. Verse 12 of chapter 1. How do you get to Revelation 3.20 without having to read this? And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. What did that voice sound like? Well, verse 10 says it was a great voice and it sounded like a trumpet. That little panty-waisted creature at the door in the picture, he ain't got a voice. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And you read last evening in your preparation that Jesus was given all authority over all men for eternal life or not. Because he has the keys of hell and of death. That is my Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we love you as the scriptures describe you. We hate the caricature. We hate the long-haired shame that Baptists have in their homes. Save us, O Lord. Deliver us from whatever delusion of Rome is still clinging to us, that we might follow Thee perfectly. We love our glorified Savior. We love this picture. And we're thankful that it's doubled to us by reading chapters 2 and 3 and then chapter 19. Lord Jesus, hear us. Heavenly Father, have mercy and bless us that we might follow thy Son, thy glorified Son, whom all of heaven worships and all the devils of hell tremble before. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
There's not the least mention of eternal life in Revelation 3.20. It's about supping, not saving. It's a call for a local church that needs more fellowship with Jesus. The people that it's addressed to are already born again, saved, baptized, preserved to eternal life, and not a single one will be lost. We reject the heresy of dead rebel sinners ever inviting a fairy Jesus into their hearts in order to get saved because they're not going to invite any real Jesus into their hearts. The Bible tells us that. You know, we've already learned that in John chapter 3. Before we get past verse 3, it says, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Right. Imagine the kingdom of God to be anything you want it to be pertaining to Jesus Christ and God. Until a man's born again, he can't even visually perceive it and discern it. And then verse 5 says, enter into it. Just can't see it. It's beyond his reach. We have to be changed before we believe, see, or do anything with the gospel. We've had so much already taught to us in John, but they don't care what it says in John 1 or 2. They just want to get to 316, paint it on their eyelids, and go to a football stadium and hope that the camera zooms in on them. I speak of Tim Tebow. These verses are ours. I want to reclaim them a little bit this morning by undoing the damage done to them. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ this morning? Amen. You have been and shall be saved. Is that a contradiction? Look at John 5, 24 with me. It's not a contradiction. There's phases of salvation. There's phases of salvation. That's why Paul told Timothy, you need to rightly divide the word of truth, Timothy, or you're going to be ashamed in your doctrine. You won't be approved by God as a minister. Rightly dividing the word of truth. You know, lots of people memorize the verse, but no one understands the verse, and hardly anyone applies the verse. We've got to take similar sounding things in the Bible, the same word sometimes, and pull them apart and put them in different categories. And there's five phases of salvation taught in the Bible. So do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? If you do, that's the evidence you have already been saved, and it is the evidence that you shall be yet saved. Right. Because some of our salvation isn't here yet, even though God did use the past tense, for the word glorified in Romans 8, 30. Right. Look at John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word, that is a present tense verb, he that hear, heareth my word, he that is hearing my word, and believeth on him that sent me, hath everlasting life. He doesn't get it because he's hearing and believing. He's already in possession of it because the word hath is to be in possession of eternal life and shall not, come into condemnation when we stand before the judge of the universe will be judged righteous by the finished work of Christ right. and how do we know that because we have the evidence now of being a believer but notice what else it says but is passed from death into life is passed is a perfect present perfect tense verb meaning that an action was performed in the past and is still true in the present it's called the perfect tense there's past perfect, present perfect, and future perfect. But this verse tells us that when we hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are, when we're do, you know, we are as we do that in possession of eternal life because only those with eternal life know God and his son Jesus Christ. They have already been passed from death into life in the act of regeneration, and in the day to come they shall be delivered from condemnation when we stand before God. That's John 5, 24. I know it's two chapters after John 3, and you'd think they might have read it. But no, it doesn't fit on eyelids as well. 
This sermon and study will be about as hard as can be about the doctrine of salvation, but Jesus, Paul, and Peter taught similar things without apology or compromise, and neither will I. Yet at each point, let's seek to remember the positive truth for our joy to embrace it. Amen. Romans 8, that was all positive. Just a pile of blessings guaranteed by God's eternal purpose in our lives. And how do we know he has an eternal purpose for our well-being in heaven with him for eternity? Because we love him. There's no faith in Romans 8, 28 through 39. It's because we love him. And so the Bible is continually wanting to press us to add to our faith. In 2 Peter 1, it says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue add to it knowledge, and to, to knowledge temperance and patience and godliness and brotherly kindness and charity. Because love is the greatest measure and evidence of eternal life by far. Now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples. Because you believe John 3.16, by the love ye have one to another. John 13, 34, and 35, because it's love that shows the greatest change in our natures, because by nature we're selfish. And when God can change us selfish people to love and to serve and to give to others, that's the greatest work of grace. It's far greater than getting us to a devil's faith of believing that Jesus is the Christ. The devils know that Jesus is the Christ better than you do. They believe it. They're terrified by it. When they met him, even in a state of humiliation in this world, they would say, fall down and worship him and say, Art thou come to torment us before the time? They know prophecy correctly. They know eternal damnation correctly. They know who's going to throw them into hell correctly. They know he's the Holy One of God correctly. And they worshiped him correctly by getting down and worshiping him. That's faith for you. That's why James writes his epistle and says, faith without works is dead. And uh, hast thou faith, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Would to God that we all trembled in our faith. But uh, we just mentioned love because it's there in Romans 8. God's love, Christ's love for us in 35 and 37, God's love for us in 39, and our love of him in verse 28. John 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. 314 is assumed to be John's evangelism to save men. They actually think that the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John were written by John to be published and left in hotel rooms, gas stations, and shopping malls. No, Scripture wasn't written for that purpose. Right. Scripture was written to be carried abroad and put in the hands of God's elect who manifested their election by believing the gospel. John wrote not to get dead sinners regenerated because he has already told us that's impossible. Right. He told us that in 1.13 where he defined regeneration in the most definitive verse in the Bible, which were born... Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Amen. How are we born again? It's not by race, it's not by our decision, and it's not by anyone else like parents or godparents doing anything for us. It's all of God. John did not write John 
to try to do something that John has already written he couldn't do. John wrote John to find believers and to tell them that their belief in Christ was evidence that they were already saved. And he wanted to exhort them and encourage them to believe more so that they could have greater assurance of that salvation. Amen. You say, show it to me in the Bible. 1 John 5 and verse 13, John tells us exactly why he wrote. 1 John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Oh, so he's writing to believers. That's absolutely correct. No one else has a right to Scripture. Until you fall on your face, repent of your sins, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and give the first little itsy-bitsy evidence that you're a child of God, then the Word of God is yours. I called it itsy-bitsy because faith in comparison to love is just that. Right. As an evidence of eternal life. If we were to go downtown right now, or go to Haywood Mall, or, and walk around and ask people, do you believe on Jesus? You know what they're all going to tell us? Yeah, I believe on Jesus. Yes, I, yeah, of course. Of course, why are you asking me? You know, of course. But uh, then we examine their lives and see how much of them selflessly love others that are beneath them for the cause of Christ. That is a different line and a higher high jump bar right. of evidence. First right. John 5, 13. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God. The scriptures are to believers because they can't help an unbeliever that ye may know that ye have eternal life. This is why John wrote, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, to give you assurance that when you die, you are going to heaven, and that ye may believe in the name of the Son of God. I love that verse and how it's formed. I've written to you that believe on Jesus, so that you can know by that faith that you have been passed from death unto life, and you are in possession of eternal life, and I'm writing to you to ask you and push you and give you evidence to believe on him more so that you can have greater assurance. That's why we preach. We can't get any names in the book of life. We can't regenerate anyone by the preaching of the gospel because the preaching of the gospel is to them that perish foolishness. How are you going to save a man perishing by preaching something to him that he thinks is nothing but a bunch of folly? But unto us which are saved... It is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18 and on and on we could go. Verse 14 of John chapter 3 is used to teach that dead sinners can look or believe and then live. This is because they haven't gone back to Numbers chapter 21 and read the six verses there about the brass serpent. We did that last Sunday so I can cover it in just a moment. Israel was discouraged so they opened they opened their yappers. I have one too. I hate it. If we complain and murmur, they were discouraged because God led them in a roundabout, circuitous way through the wilderness. It wasn't the straightest course they could have taken. They were discouraged, and so they opened their mouths and complained against God and complained against Moses. This is the church. We're not talking about the Egyptians, the Philistines, or the Hittites. We are talking about the church. The church complained against God that they had to take such a bad route, and why did God bring them out in this stinking wilderness where we're all going to die? 
What did God do to his church? The same thing he did to Corinth. Right. You know, many were dead in the church at Corinth because they had abused the Lord's Supper. God sent fiery serpents among the Israelites, and they bit and killed much people. The people repented and said, Moses, pray to God for us. God said, Moses, put up a brass serpent. And anyone that's bitten can look at the brass serpent and he'll stay alive. Remember, I warned, I warned you last Lord's Day, for those people that love to, to look at John 3.14 and think that uh, every man has the free will to look and live, wrong. Everyone God wanted to kill was already dead. That's right. You say, why did God want to kill anyone? They deserved all to be killed. I don't understand why God saved any of them except Moses. Why do you look at it so perversely that you want to blame God for doing something bad? I only want to blame him for doing something good. And I'm not blaming him. I just don't understand it. They all should have died for complaining against God. Right. He had just delivered them from 215 years of slavery out of Egypt. And they're complaining against God. They were already dead. Did the brass serpent help any of the dead? What are we in trespasses and sins when Jesus Christ is presented to us just audibly? We're dead in trespasses and sins. You can't look to Jesus. You can't believe on Jesus. You won't believe on Jesus because you hate Jesus of the Bible in our natural man. God has to change us first. Then we repent. Then we're shown the Savior. Then we look at him and we believe on him. And the Bible tells us you're going to live. Because you're in possession of eternal life. You've been passed from death into life. You'll not come into condemnation when you meet God. So 3.14 does not teach that dead sinners have a free will that can look and believe because everyone that God killed in Numbers chapter 21 were already dead. No Israelites were brought back to life by looking at the brass serpent. Only those Israelites with life and repentant were provided a brass serpent to look at for their assurance of keep, keep continuing in that life. All Jesus made the comparison for was the lifted up aspect, which we used last Sunday for the Lord's Supper. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness means put him up on a pole suspended between heaven and earth, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, put on a pole, right. a cross, suspended between heaven and earth. That's what it's there for. The comparison is very obvious in verse 14. Look for the little adverb as, and as Moses, as means in this way, so, even so, is a very strong comparative, must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the, it's the, the, the comparison is in the lifting up, because Jesus is giving Nicodemus a little prophecy that won't be fulfilled for three years, and that is, Jesus had to die a Roman death, not a Jewish death. Just keep some of these things in mind when we get to turn this passage around and make it positive from 14 to 21 next Sunday. Right now, we've got to undo all the damage done to it. There's a prophecy in verse 14 of how Jesus will die, and it's mentioned three more times in the Gospel of John that Jesus had to go up. See, Jews killed down. You were on the ground, and you got stoned to death. And when Pilate told the Jews, you go kill him, they said it's against the law for us to kill him. 
So he, had to, he ended up being crucified so that all the prophecies could be kept. Stoning with bowling balls or whatever you want to imagine in your head. They didn't stone him with little pebbles. When they stoned a man, bones were broken. He, he couldn't have any bones broken. He had to have his side pierced. He had to have his hands and his feet pierced. All those things were fulfilled by a Roman death, not a Jewish death. That's what verse 14 is for in the Bible. We get to verse 15. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For those of you that mark your Bibles, and I don't know if you do or not, and I'm not recommending that it's helpful or not, but sometimes it is, you can circle the word as, the little adverb in the first clause. You can circle the even so, the adverbs in the second clause of verse 14. And you can circle that, that uh, opens up verse 15, because that's the connection in this sentence. As Moses put a serpent on a pole, Jesus is going to be put up on a cross for the intended purpose of guaranteeing the salvation of all believers. That is all the verse is saying. There is no offer. There is no probability. There is no condition. It is simply a statement of Jesus has to die a Roman death to fulfill the word of God to accomplish the purpose of not a single believer perishing but having everlasting life. And see, only that interpretation fits everything else in the Gospel of John or anywhere else in the Bible that tells us how belief fits with eternal life. You have to have eternal life first in order to believe. This verse is only stating a fact. If, if this verse meant how it's commonly used by Arminians, the next words would be these. Nicodemus, do you know you're a sinner? And would you like to get down and pray after me? But of course, no one in the Bible ever did anything like that. Right. 3.15, they look at the word whosoever, they think it's a magic pronoun. It, doesn't, it just means any person that. Whoever. You, you can take the word so out. If you go look at an Oxford English dictionary or some good dictionary, whosoever equals whoever. Any that. They think it's magical. That whosoever just gets them all worked up. That man must have a free will because of the word whosoever, even though we have just been told in this chapter, in verse 3, that until a man is born again, except a man be born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. So how are you going to believe on the king of the kingdom? How are you going to believe on the king of the kingdom? Verse 15, if you can't even see the kingdom. And chapter 1 and verse 13, I'm going to quote it again, it's just too good, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you have a sinner in front of you, and you tell them about Jesus being put up on a pole like the brass serpent was put up on a pole, but he's a sinner in front of you, he's an unregenerate sinner, he's in the flesh. Verse 6 of chapter 3 says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. When you're in the flesh, you can't see anything with spiritual perception. It's all foolishness to you. Right. And getting born again is not by the will of that creature anyway, because it is not by the will of the flesh. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Amen. When we sing that, we mean it. When they sing it, they save themselves. Because they think that they made a choice, and that is we in the past. Me in the past. I used to believe that. That it was my choice that got heaven moving. 
It was my choice that sent the Spirit to regenerate me, that I believed, then I was born again. But that is not what the Bible teaches at all. And they try to take that from the words, whosoever. And whosoever is just a pronoun. Man is given to death and rebellion, and there's no way that he could be offered any of these things, shown these things. It wouldn't matter if you made the most graphic, bloody movie like The Passion of the Christ that Mel Gibson did 12 years ago. That's not going to move a depraved sinner. When you discuss salvation with anyone, the first place you should go is to the total depravity of man in his natural state. What is man like in his natural state before he is saved? What does the Bible say about his abilities? What does the Bible say about his will? What does the Bible say about his bondage? What does the Bible say about his life or death? The Bible says he is dead. He is a rebel. His carnal mind is against the law of God. He cannot please God. The gospel is foolishness to him. The Bible says all those things. And that is where you start in any study of salvation. You start with depravity. We are not Calvinists. However... TULIP is a simple little acronym that helps sometimes. T for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for perseverance of the saints. We disagree with the last two and apply them differently. We believe in the preservation of the saints, and we believe the only irresistible work of the Holy Spirit in salvation is regeneration, not conversion. God hasn't guaranteed the conversion of all. He's, he's guaranteed the regeneration of all. Just a lazy pastor can keep you from realizing irresistible grace in conversion. Because it says in 1 Timothy 4.16, Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Paul to Timothy, Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. A carnal or lazy pastor will cost his church some of their conversion. He can't touch their regeneration. Everyone gets to heaven with different degrees of conversion. How about Abraham and Lot? Did they both end up in heaven? The Bible tells us in 2 Peter chapter 2 that Lot was a just man and a righteous man. He is in heaven right now, and Abraham's there. Lot's in Abraham's bosom for the second time. Lot's in Abraham's bosom, but look what kind of man Lot was versus what Abraham was. Right. I mean, Abraham was the friend of God, and Lot was a loser. And, and that, that spectrum, you know, every one of us is going to fall somewhere along there. And my prayer and labor and hope is that you and I will be over here with the friend of God right. and not get saved yet so as by fire and barely make it into the presence of God. Of course, the finished work of Christ is sufficient, but let's be the friends of God while we're here. That's all we'll do. It's time for our break. I have 25 points. We just covered three of them, and we are not going to do this any longer than this Sunday, and may the Lord bless the preaching of his word.